<clears throat> Thanks, Gary. So we're in Psalm 86, uh, and it's just best to read the, the whole thing each time. We get the whole gist of it, the whole flavor of, of David's prayer. But I want to I pray as well, but I'm going to read a prayer. And this prayer is in the Bible. It's a good place for prayers to be. And it is in Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm going to pray it. I'm going to read, read it and pray it. We're praying it together. This is a prayer that during my sabbatical, I spent some time meditating on it and praying for myself and praying this for us. And it's very appropriate for today. So let me pray. For this reason, Paul writes, I bow my knee before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that you may know the love of Christ, paradox here, that surpasses knowledge. Paul says it's unknowable. It's, it's, it's so big it's unknowable, but I'm praying you know it anyway. And so that's my prayer for us today. As we come to Psalm 86 and some other uh, places in Scripture, that we would know the depths and height and breadth of the love of Christ, of God's love for us. Because when we know God's love for us, that changes us. And so just knowing something isn't, we're not done then. Then God does some work in our hearts. So this is the third sermon from David's prayer found in Psalm 86. Now, as part of this sermon series, I asked two questions. In the first uh, week, two weeks ago, uh, I asked two questions. First question was, what is David praying for? So uh, this is the psalm that Gary just read, and we, we looked at it together two weeks ago. I'm just going to uh, give you the answer here. What is David praying for? We saw he's asking God to preserve his life, to be gracious to him, to gladden his soul, to teach him his, God's ways, to unite his heart, to, to fear God's name, to give him strength, to save him, and to show him a sign of God's favor. Then we ask the question, so who is David praying to? So we saw what he's praying for. Now, who is he praying to? Uh, that, that's really the main question we've been a- answering over the past two weeks, and, and we'll continue to answer that. That's the question we'll continue to look at today. And of course, the answer was, and still is, David is praying to God. Remember, he, he used all three of the main names for God. Jehovah, Adonai, Elohim, uh, in different ways, the Hebrew names for God. But we're, we also are seeing how David describes, he's describing God and he's glorifying God in his prayer. How he declares and, and how we behold God's glory as David prays. How, how we see who God is and what God does. So that like David, we might be drawn to him in prayer. It's, if we don't know who God is, why would we pray to him? 
And so the, the scripture reveals who he is. And David, in this midst of his prayer, is revealing who God is that we might go to him. And the glory of God that we've beheld so far is that first, God is our personal God. That those who trust in Him enter into this personal relationship with Him. Second, I mean, we did, uh, you had to be here two weeks ago. This is just a review. Uh, if you weren't here two weeks ago, there was whole, we talked about these things, but I just want to get them out before us. Second, God is the, the one and only God. He alone is God. There is no other. And therefore, He alone, He alone has the, the power to answer our prayers. Third, God is our Father. We went outside of uh, Psalm 86 to see this because this is really revealed in the New Testament. Jesus tells us to pray our Father who art in heaven. We have a special, intimate relationship with God. He's our Father. Fourth, God is good. He not only has the power to answer our prayers, He's not only the one and only God, but because He's our good Father... He has the desire to answer our prayers in a way that it's best for us. Fifth, and this is a a best for us, God is forgiving. That because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, God can and does forgive the sins of those who confess their sins, of those who call upon His name, of those who trust in Him and, and come to Him. And this means we don't have to run from God. When we know who God is, when we truly see who He is, we know we we don't have to run from Him, but we need to run to Him and receive forgiveness. We not only receive forgiveness, but we also receive the power to overcome our sin. We can draw near to God through His Word, through prayer, because God is forgiving. And why is He forgiving? Why is He good? Why is He our Father? Why does He allow us to enter into a personal relationship with Him? Why so much more? I think we're going to see that today. Because God is love. Remember, I I, I just introduced this truth last week. And and today we're going to continue to examine God's glorious love for us. The heights and the depths and the breadth of God's love. But before we do that, I want us to look at at one more question about David's prayer. We've seen what he's praying for. We've seen and will continue to see who he's praying to, uh, the the glories of God. But leading us into a a deeper look at God's love, I want us to see, I want us to ask the question, why, why is David praying? Why is David praying? Specifically, what caused David to, to write this particular psalm, to pray this thing? I, I believe it's a prayer, and then he, he wrote it down. I don't know how long, you know, I don't know if he edited his prayer or just came to him. I don't know how that worked. But why is he crying out to God? And the answer is that David is experiencing some difficulty in his life. He has some needs he wants to express to God. Needs he, he can't meet for himself. So in the... In, in, In verse 1, he cries out, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Then in verse 7, he says, In the day of my trouble, I call upon you. David has some big needs uh, because he's in big trouble. And in verse 14, he describes the trouble he's in. 
O God, insolent men have, have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. David has needs. Uh, he's got some trouble, which he's unable to deal with. He can't handle this. Insolent, arrogant, proud men are trying to kill him. And this drives him to God. So why is David praying? Because he has some needs, some difficulty, some trouble in his life. And this is not unique to Psalm 86. During my sabbatical, as I read through the Psalms, one of the things I noticed was how often David and others Pray, prayers are motivated by trouble, by difficulty, specifically by various, this is David specifically, by various enemies who are trying to do him harm. A lot of people, or at least one person, is very persistent in trying to kill David, if you read the Psalms. Just a few examples. Psalm 35, 1 contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Psalm 59, 1 and 2. And this, this one gives us the context. It says, as Saul is trying to kill him, David prays, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. In Psalm 69, 14, he prays, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Now, at first, as I read through these and, and many other psalms like them, I, I kind of, you know, I'll be honest with you, I kind of skipped over the, this enemy stuff. I read it, but I didn't highlight it. I didn't meditate on it. My thinking was that, that these kind of verses don't really apply to me. As far as I know, uh, no one is trying to kill me. No one is uh, fighting against me. No one is challenging me to some fisticuffs. I said fisticuffs. Where, what is that? I'm only 55, not 105, you know. Uh, I don't really have any enemies. I mean... You, might, you may disagree, but as far as I know, I don't really have any enemies. But at the same time, as I was reading through the Psalms and thinking that, I was reading through uh, Tim Keller's book on prayer. And in the section on, he's got a section on how to paraphrase and personalize the Psalms. Sort of how to pray through the Psalms and make them your own. Uh, I came upon this statement. He says, when paraphrasing Psalm 59, which we read... Where it begins, deliver me from my enemies, O God, it may be that we do not have any human opponents dedicated to killing us or destroying our lives. The New Testament, however, talks about our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as I read that, it dawned on me just how wrong I was. I saw that, yes, I do have enemies, and these enemies want to kill me. I have the world that works through mind-numbing entertainment and, and really the normalization of sin, seeking to kill my desire to do God's holy purposes, to, to, to grow in my relationship, in my holiness with God. I, I have the flesh that works through my, my selfish desires and my sinful propensities, seeking to kill this process of transformation, this sanctification that God is at work in my life. I have the devil that works to kill every godly thing about me. Satan's greatest desire for every person on planet earth is first to keep us completely away from the true God. 
And he's got different methods and and strategies to do that, to keep us from knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But but once we've trusted in Christ, once once through God's power, through God's choice of us, however you want to think about it, we trust in Christ. Make no mistake, the devil is not done with you. He just changes his tactics. Instead of trying to divert us from trusting in Christ, he seeks to keep us from enjoying and, and growing in our relationship with God and thus makes us useless for the kingdom of God. That's his goal through his, through his lies and through our, our sin and fear and unbelief, he seeks to kill our knowledge and our experience of God. He seeks to kill our ability to fulfill the purposes that God has given us uh, in this life. As the Apostle Peter wrote to believers, he said, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you're not being sober-minded and watchful, he'll, he'll devour you. So I hope it's clear that we, not just me, but we, have enemies. Our enemies may not be seeking to end our physical lives, but they're dedicated to destroying our spiritual lives. And unlike David, who had times of, uh, of rest, of relief uh, from his enemies, times of great security in his kingdom... In this life, we'll never be free from our enemies. We must face them on a daily basis. Now, maybe you're thinking, thanks for the words of encouragement, Pastor. Well, I promise those are coming. But we won't receive words of encouragement until we know what our true situation is. Until we know where we stand. I'm telling you where you stand right now. We need to know that in a very real sense, we too, like David, are poor and needy. And that every day is a day of trouble. But, words of encouragement here, every day can also be a day of triumph. Because even though we have enemies seeking to destroy our lives, we have a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, good, forgiving Father, God, who loves us, seeking to give us victory over our enemies, seeking to give us an abundant life. But our only hope, to experiencing victory, to experiencing the abundant life that God offers, is like David, to cry out to God in prayer. To draw near to the one who has the power and the desire to defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's really the purpose of this sermon series. Two, by, by the power of the, God's Spirit... You know, I may say some stupid stuff, and I pray that it gets filtered through. But by God's Spirit, that each and every one of us here is inspired and motivated and convinced of our need to draw near to God. To regularly, to daily, uh, if we're to believe Paul in uh, Thessalonians, to continually pray, to continually be in relationship with God, to experience intimate relationship with God through His Word and prayer. And I believe the best, really the only way that we will be inspired and motivated and convinced both in our heads and our hearts of our need, uh, convinced that we're needy, convinced that we're in trouble without God, is to see who He is, to behold His glory, to see Him for who He is, and to see what He does in our lives. That's what David is doing in Psalm 86. 
As he prays in the day of trouble, in his day of trouble, he's also reciting these glorious attributes of the Lord, reminding himself of the, of the truth of who God is and what God does, and declaring to us for, for generations to come uh, why we can and should and must draw near to the Lord ourselves. David is saying, Lord, I I can ask you to intervene in my day of trouble. I can ask you to overcome my enemies because of who you are and what you do, because of your glory, because you're the greatest, because you're good and forgiving and loving and more we'll talk about in weeks to come. That's why we're spending so much time looking, uh, beholding the glory of God. So we'll have the confidence and the hope and the motiva- I think this motivation is so important. Motivation is the heart part of it. You know, we can, we can have the belief that we need to pray to God, but do we have the motivation? I want to give us some motivation by just setting before you, this is how awesome God is. Why would you be doing anything else but seeking Him? Drawing near to Him in the midst of our daily trouble. Knowing that he alone, he alone has the power and the desire to defeat all of our enemies, to give us triumph on a daily basis, that in him alone we can find joy and satisfaction and peace and hope that we long for. Those are the things that we want, and we can only find them in relationship with him. So, so we need to draw near to him. So today we're going to continue to use uh, Psalm 86. I think, I don't know if this is what David had in mind, but, but I, I, it's what we can do. Behold God's glory based on the things uh, he's written in his prayer. Beholding, and specifically today, beholding the glory of God's love. This may be the greatest uh, motivating factor for us to draw near to God. As I, in my sabbatical, as I began to think about and meditate on the love of God, I couldn't help but saying, going to Him, spending time with Him. This is where we need to be. And, th- and this, God's love, is the heart. It's the heart of why we can come to Him in prayer. It's like the opening of the door. There, there's the forgiveness, but the forgiveness is caused by this, by the love of God. This opens the door to him. Last week, I introduced this, this glorious love of God. And today, we're going to look at it more closely. We already saw how David in Psalm 86, three times, declares God's love. Verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Let me just... Uh, uh, use that to make this clear. So I'm talking about God's love for, for those who uh, are his children, to those who call him father. And, and David says, to all who call upon you. And what he means by that is to those who you're their God. I'm calling upon you. You're my God. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's this, is, this, uh, this love of God we're talking about is for those who've trusted in Him, who call upon Him. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a, good, are, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You can see a bunch of other stuff in there, right? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, faithfulness. We'll look at those in a in, in, in weeks to come. But today we're focusing on this abounding in steadfast love. 
This is just, uh, I mentioned this last week too, this is a common theme. God's steadfast love is declared over and over throughout the Psalms. And that phrase, steadfast love, is the Hebrew word hesed. It includes the, the ideas, the concepts of, of, of long-lasting, enduring, kindness, goodness, loyalty, favor, and care. It's love that desires what's best for and acts in the best interests of the object of its love. It's both the feeling of love and the action that naturally flows from the feeling. It's not just a feeling, but it's not less than a feeling. And what that means, that God has this hesed, this steadfast love for us, what that means is God's love is for our good. God's love is for our good. Now, this may be obvious to some, but I want to make this very clear. We've already talked about the fact that God is good. But I want us to see that His goodness in our lives flows from His love for us. I want us to understand that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us, Paul says to the church in Rome. One example of this is found in in God's relationship with Joseph. Joseph, uh, not Joseph and Mary, Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, the uh, 11th son of Jacob. Even though Joseph, and if you know the story of Joseph, pretty common one. If you don't, rent the movie. Read the book, I don't know. Joseph suffered greatly. See the play, the many colors guy, coat of many colors. Uh, he suffered greatly, more than min- most of us can, can uh, fathom. Sold into slavery by his brothers. Now that's a bummer. Your enemies are your brothers. That's a drag. Falsely accused of sexual misconduct, Potiphar's wife was his enemy there. Wrongly imprisoned, Potiphar, his master, became his enemy. Joseph had enemies, and he faced many days of trouble. But God was always at work for his good. Why? Because God loved Joseph. In Genesis 39, 21, when Joseph is in prison, we read, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Showed him. Underline showed him. There's this, there's this showing component, this doing component. Showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Steadfast love is shown. It's revealed by action, by doing good for the one you love. God loved Joseph and therefore God gave Joseph favor in, in the sight of the, the prison warden. Which results in Joseph being put in charge of the prison, if you, if you know the story. So that's just one example of God's steadfast love revealed in the Old Testament. And then there's more. Joseph gets out of prison and becomes second only to the Pharaoh over Egypt. But when we get to the New Testament, that's when God's steadfast love is, is really fully revealed, I think. That's when we see just how God's love is for our good. And probably the best summary of how God's love is for our good is found in in the very familiar verse, maybe the most familiar verse in the Bible. I just want to make sure you guys are there. John 3.16, right? Does anybody uh, ever hold that up in sporting events anymore? I remember the rainbow-headed guy. He, I don't know if he's dead or alive now, but I don't see it anymore. Sorry, I'm dating myself. Uh, Jesus said, For God so 
loved, say it with me, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's a reason this verse is so well-known, so popular. It's packed full of important things. God's love for the world, for all people, caused him to seek our good. The world was in a very troublesome situation. We were all poor and needy. Because of our sin, we were destined to uh, perish, to experience uh, eternal separation from God in hell. And to make matters worse, because of our sin nature, there was absolutely nothing we could do about it. I can't think of a, of a worse situation to be in. But because of God's love, He acted on our behalf. He did something on our behalf. We were in a hopeless, hapless, helpless situation, but God worked. God moved. I, I was reminded of my particular, and we all have our stories, I was reminded of my story yesterday. I was at a Anthem uh, Hall, got his MDiv, and he had a little party. And at his party was one of his co-workers. You know, Anthony's working as a chaplain for hospice. And one of his co-workers is a man named Paul Havsgard. Anybody recognize that name? Yeah, we got some hands. You guys are old like me. He was there. And so I went up and introduced myself to Paul. I said, hi, Paul. Uh, my name's Cliff. I'm the pastor of the church Anthony was working at. And uh, you baptized me. 40-some-odd years ago in Lake Paris. 40-some-odd years ago, Paul was a, a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Riverside. And then I started telling him, you know, my story, how we had just moved to, I go, uh, we went out there to Lake Paris, and we were not quite into, we were not yet into the hip culture, the hip 60s, early 70s culture of Calvary Chapel, Riverside. And so we actually wore clothes, these people were wearing shorts and sandals and had on bathing suits. I thought I had to wear a suit to be baptized in. I wasn't wearing a suit, but I was wearing clothes. And so we looked a little out of place, but we, got, we went out and got baptized. I shared, you know, how my parents, I didn't share then because I was just a 13-year-old kid, but I shared with him yesterday how, you know, my parents had just come to Christ out of a, a life of debauchery. Is that fair, Dad? Okay. Out of a, you know, and... Uh, and how my seeing uh, the transformation in their lives led me to go, I want to know this God too. And so how the first opportunity, the first Lake Paris baptismal, I was out there. So, so God loved us. He loved our family. And that was the result. Because of God's love, He acted on our behalf. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. He sent Christ into a, a sinful, rebellious world. He sent Christ to, to make a way for us not to perish, but to have eternal life. Not just not to perish, but to have eternal life. That's love, right? You don't just get to not perish. You get to have eternal life. He sent Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He sent Christ to experience the wrath of God that we deserve. Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said. And he did it. He acted because he loved. Here in uh, John 3.16, throughout the, the New Testament, the word love is not the Hebrew word hesed because the New Testament wasn't written in Hebrew. Uh, it was written in Greek. 
The word love here is the Greek word. Oh, man, why do I bother coming? No, I'm just kidding. Now, most of us are familiar with this word, right? You, obviously, we, some of us even participated there. We often think of agape in terms of the highest form of love. We, we, hear, we, we talk of it as like this unconditional love, right? As opposed to the other Greek words for love, eros and storgi and phileo and things. But what's interesting is that in the Greek language, uh, which came out of Greek culture, a culture influenced by their human-like fallible gods, if you know anything about the Greek gods, a plural, many gods, that's where this, uh, this word was part of that culture. Therefore, they really didn't have a great word to describe God's love. I mean, they've got a language, but they didn't have a word to describe this kind of love that we're talking about. Their gods didn't love like the God of the Hebrews loved. Their gods didn't necessarily desire what is best for or act in the best interests of the objects of their love. Their gods, like themselves, their gods were very much like themselves, desired what was best for themselves and acted accordingly. In some ways, if you don't know a lot about the Greek gods, they're kind of like uh, superheroes of today. You know, they've got these powers, but they're just people. Their gods, uh, so, so, so they, were, they, they didn't uh, have a word that described this, this hesed, this steadfast love. So what the authors of the New Testament had to do was to take uh, uh, the little used Greek. They, they sort of picked, okay, there's these words for love, and this one is the least polluted, this agape. This word agape. And so what they did, the New Testament writers, was fill it with meaning. In his book, Your, Your Father Loves You, J.I. Packer writes, the Greek word agape seems to have been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. Before that, you, you find it a few places. It's used sometimes as a, as, as a substitute for some of the other words. But it doesn't really have a meaning of its own. So that's the one that the New Testament writers chose. The new thing that they wanted to, to, to show was the love of God. Love that caused Him to act for our good by giving us His Son. The Greeks could not conceive of a God who would sacrificially love for them like our God did. We're supposed to sacrifice for You know, isn't that what, if you, if you think about the religions of the world, they talk about what we're supposed to sacrifice to the gods, not what God has sacrificed for us. The New Testament writers filled this Greek word agape with new meaning. So that, the, so that Greeks, the, the Gentiles, so that we could understand the glorious hesed. I think if they were writing in Hebrew, they would just probably would have used hesed. Love of God. A love that's enduring and kind and good and loyal and caring. A love that desires what is best for and acts in the best interest of the object of its love. And I hope this helps us to see, I mean, are you getting the glory of God's love for you? I hope this helps us to see why we need to behold, understand, and believe the glorious nature of the steadfast love of God. 
Because it's when we're convinced of his love for us, if it's when you're convinced of his love for you, when you're convinced that his, staff, his steadfast love is meant for you, it's then that you'll draw near to him. It's then that you'll go before the Lord in your day of trouble and, and at all times. You'll go uh, to him in worship and praise and thanksgiving. You'll go to him confessing your sins uh, because, it, because of his love. You can receive forgiveness for your sins. You'll go to him for the power to overcome your sin. And you'll go with him with requests and petitions. Knowing that you're going before the one who loves you like no other. The one who, whose love is steadfast, abounding, infinite, because he's infinite. If you struggle to believe and act based on the truth that God loves you, I draw your attention back to John 3.16 and, and move you forward to the cross. God gave his son to die a sacrificial death for you. It's on the cross that God uh, wrote his love letter to humanity, but, but it's only those who put their trust in him who receive his love. It's only those who call upon his name, as David says in Psalm 86, who receive the steadfast love of the Lord. So I implore you to put your trust in the God who loves you. Put your trust in Jesus Christ who died for you, who took your place. It's only then that you'll experience the truth that God's love is for your good. We'll see this again when we, when we get to communion. I'm excited that today was communion that worked out. So when we get there, we're going to talk some more about how good God's love is for us. But first, I want us to behold one final truth about God's love this morning. This truth, I believe, will give us assurance about God's steadfast love for us. I want us to see that God's love for us is based on uh, what God's love for us is based on. So what is it based on? I want us to see God's love is for His glory. Did you get it? You're so good. Now, one way to see this is by asking and answering the question, uh, why does God love us? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God love me? When we read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say why. Have you ever just stopped to ask why? Why did God so love the world? Now, I don't believe we can fully answer that question. Because it goes to the very heart of God, and we can't fully know the heart of God. But there are some things that God's Word teaches us about who God is and about who we are, who we were and who we are, that can help us get at least part of an answer. Now, well, some would say, God's lo- God loves us because He created us in His image. What do you think about that? Okay, but, and that might be part of the answer. In fact, I think it probably is. But the answer, but that answer is only supposition. What I mean is that it, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. God loves us because we were created in His image. Is not in the Bible. I think it's, 
We, we know God created us in his image, and we know he loves us, but those two aren't ever put together anywhere. But I think it's, it's valid. I think probably there's this general love that God has for all humanity. Maybe that general love for God so loved the world, and that's because we were created in his image. Again, supposition. But then there's this deeper love that comes to those who call upon his name. And so we can't really be certain what part our creation in his image plays in God's love for us. But one thing that we can be certain of is this. God does not love us because we are lovable or because we deserve his love. If anything, the the opposite is true. The state of humanity since the fall is one of rebellion and disobedience. Romans 3, 10, and 12, and this isn't the only place it's quoting from the Old Testament, clearly presents the condition of humanity, of all of us, without Christ. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. More words of encouragement, right? How then, they're coming, how then is it possible for a holy, righteous, perfect God to love such creatures? Such, uh, I, I didn't make up this word, it's right there, worthless creatures. To understand this, we must behold the nature, the character, the attributes of God. 1 John 1.8 tells us that God is not just loving, but God is love. This is familiar Yet, it's so profound. God's very nature is love. And I want us to behold the glory of His love. I want us to see how His love for us, for rebellious sinners, is glorious. So let me ask you a question. Uh, Think of two people. Who receives the greater glory? Who looks the best? If if we'll we'll just put it that that, that way. Uh, I hope we're getting the understanding as we're talking about the glory, that, that it's, it's just the, the, the greatness of. Who looks the best, who's glorified, the giver of love or the receiver of love? The one who says I love you or the one who's being loved? Who's, the most, who's glorified in that? The giver? The giver of love? You ever seen the t-shirts or the, the movie, Star Wars? Uh, Leia says, I love you, and Han says, I know. You know, who's glorified there? Did that even make sense? Okay, strike that. Cut that from the tape. Strike that. Christina bought, we, she bought the t-shirts. We have the t-shirts. But, uh, so who receives the greater love, the giver of the love or the receiver of the love? We're saying, any... any I heard some givers. Any receivers? Receiver? We got a receiver. Okay. It's really a trick question because I'm tricky. (laughs) Because it depends. Let me illustrate it this way. If I were to say I'm the giver, right? I love my wife, Christina. She's the receiver. Who gets the glory? Who's made to look good? The giver, me, or my wife, the receiver? Well, the answer is the receiver, right? Because behind the statement, I love Christina, are a lot of reasons why I love her. 
I love her because she's kind. Most of the time. No, I'm just kidding. She's, can I do this, hon? She's 55 and still beautiful. That's pretty good. I love her because she's fun to be around. She's so funny and tells great jokes. That's not true, but anyway. Uh, I love her because she's patient and forgiving. That is true. I love her because she loves me. And, and I could go on, right? So when I say I love Christina, it makes her look good because she is uh, lovely. She's lovable. But suppose I were to say this. One of my neighbors is really causing me a lot of trouble. His dogs are always barking and digging holes under my fence. When I try to talk to him about it, he curses me. Yesterday, he even punched me in the nose. This is not a true story, by the way. But you know what? I really love that guy. In that case, the giver of love, me, gets the glory. Now, that's a made-up story, so don't, don't think I would really love him. But anyway, I'm made to look good. I'm made to look good because in spite of who my neighbor is, my enemy actually, I still love him. Let me put it this way. If there are reasons for loving someone, then the receiver of love gets the glory for those reasons, right? But if there are no reasons for loving someone, and you love anyway, the giver of love gets the glory for his ability to love, for his loving nature. That makes sense? All right. So think back to those two scenarios. You got my wife over here. She's over here. And you got my enemy over here, not Gary or Pat either. Which one of these scenarios best relates to God's love for us? The neighbor. The neighbor. The love given to the enemy, to my jerk of a neighbor. We were the neighbor, we were God's enemies. We were in rebellion against him. If possible, we would have punched him in the nose. And yet God loved us. And he demonstrated his love by by lavishing it on undeserving people. People who were in rebellion against him. Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God shows his, again, showing his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And if you read Romans 5, there's, there's rebellion and enemy. It's not just, oh, you're just a sinner. It's all that word means. While we were yet sinners, in rebellion against God, Christ died for us. Christ did the most loving thing possible for us while we were sinners. Behold the glory of God seen in His love for us. Why does God love us? Not because we deserve it. It's because of who He is. God is love. Therefore, He gets the glory. God's love is for His glory. And this is the most wonderful, this is all about God, but this is the most wonderful news for us. Why is that? Because it means that His love for us will never change. God is love. And because His love is for us, is not based on us, on who we are or what we... Remember, He loved us while we were sinners. He loved us when we were in rebellion against Him. Now, if you've trusted in Him, you're His child. You think He will ever stop loving you? Be secure 
in His glorious love. This means that we who are poor and needy can come to Him at any time. He's there in times of joy. He's there in times of sorrow. He's waiting to hear our cries in our times of trouble. He's there to empower us to overcome our sin and our enemies. Our loving, good, forgiving, personal, heavenly Father is waiting for us. He wants us to draw near to Him through His Word, through prayer. These are the gifts He's given us, whom He loves. He wants to show His love by doing good for us, that we might see and declare His glorious love. Behold the glorious love of God and allow His love. I just take some time this week. To meditate on, you know, you've heard it, it's cliche, right? God loves me. God loves me. Have you thought about that? Have you asked the question, uh, what difference does that make in my life? Has it changed me? Is it, is it because when God, there's, uh, the, the passage says, uh, we love because God first loved us. Are you allowing the love of God for you to flow through you into the life of others? Take some time this week to ponder, to draw near to God, to meditate on just the simple fact that He loves you. Would the ushers and worship team come forward as I pray? Father God, thank You for this day. And thank You uh, is such a uh, not good enough word uh, to thank You for Your love, Father. Your love has done so much. It's opened up relationship with You. It's opened up uh, our salvation It means we don't perish, but we instead receive eternal life. Lord, help us to be people who trust in you, who draw near to you, who see you, who behold your glorious love, and know that you're waiting for us, that you want us, that you're our Father, that you want to experience us to experience intimate relationship with you. In Christ's name, amen.